7. I, I am Charles and his Paris balloon. News, like sound, travels fast, and the applause which greeted the ascent of the Montgolfier balloon at Anonati had hardly ceased when it seemed to reach the ears of the people in Paris, and put the whole town in quite a flutter of excitement. Some of those who had been present at the great experiment wrote an account of it to their friends in Paris, who at once began to make arrangements for inviting the Montgolfiers to send up another balloon from the capital. But these arrangements took too long to satisfy the impatience of the people of Paris, and they were better pleased when M.D. St. Fond opened a subscription to pay expenses for a separate experiment. No one in all France had heard of the event at Anonati with more interest and delight than a certain M. James Alexander Caesar Charles a young and clever scientist who took great pleasure in showing people the wonderful things he had discovered. When Franklin brought lightning out of the clouds with a kite, M. Charles followed the road thus pointed out to him, and soon found new wonders which he had a great talent for explaining. Thus, though he might not be a great original discoverer, he was quick to see in what direction truth lay, and was able to lead those who were less learned than himself. What wonder, then! that the people of Paris were full of expectation when they heard that M. Charles had put away his electrical studies to devote his attention to balloons. Sufficient money having been collected he set to work with the assistance of two brothers named Robert, and constructed an envelope of silk, which, when filled, would make a balloon 12 feet 2 inches in diameter. This was very small when compared with the giant of Anone, but the gas that M. Charles was going to use would make it 13 times stronger, you see said he, the air that the Montgolfiers use is twice as light as the atmosphere, I shall use inflammable gas as hydrogen was then called, which is 14 times lighter, though to retain this it will be necessary to paint the silk with rubber dissolved in turpentine, but if the gentlemen who sat around the platform at Anonati had gathered to see this baby balloon inflated they would have grown very weary, for it took nearly four days. Every morning outside Charles's house a notice was hung up to inform the eager crowds how the wonderful little giant was growing, and at last it became necessary for mounted police to protect his door. So great was the crush. Then, on the 26th of August, though the balloon was not quite full, it was decided to carry it to the Champs de Mars, the open space from which the ascent was to be made. There the filling could be completed, but as not even a king, traveling in state would be likely to draw such excited throngs as this balloon. Arrangements were made for moving the silk bag in the middle of the night. First, all the tools which would be required at the launching were sent in advance, then, at two o'clock in the morning, the procession set out. A strong body of mounted soldiers accompanied the wagon on which the half-filled balloon was placed, while in front of it marched a body of men carrying torches. The journey was only two miles long. Yet in that short distance the cavalcade was greeted with enough applause to satisfy the most ambitious. All vehicles encountered en route were drawn aside, and the drivers doffed their caps as they watched it pass. As the balloon swayed solemnly from side to side, an imaginative onlooker might have fancied that it was acknowledging these respectful salutations. In due course the scene of action was safely reached and the filling process continued, as the gas had to be made from sulfuric acid and iron filings. It naturally took some time, but when the clocks of Paris were striking five on the evening of August 27, 1783, Charles's cloud cruiser was ready for the voyage. The bells had hardly done chiming when a cannon shot was heard. It was the signal for departure. The thousands of spectators heard it with a thrill of interest, 
and as its echoes reverberated over Paris, the watchers of the high towers of Notre Dame, and the military school, directed their telescopes to the Champs de Mars. One of the guests was Stephen Montgolfier, for though Charles might add improvements to others' inventions, he always acknowledged to whom the first honor belonged. In spite of the heavy rain that was falling, the balloon shot into the air with great rapidity, and in the space of a minute or two disappeared behind a cloud. The moment it vanished another cannon was fired as though in farewell, but the watchers richly dressed gentlemen and fine ladies regardless of the weather, continued to keep their eyes upon the clouds, and were surprised to see it once more, far above them, sailing in the direction of Gaunus, fifteen miles away, here in a field it settled, three quarters of an hour after leaving Paris, and met its doom, the country people, imagining it to be a large and unknown bird, approached in fear, until one, bolder than the rest, stabbed it with a pitchfork, when the sighing sound, made by the outrushing gas, only confirmed their conviction that it was endowed with life, in vain did the village cure try to dissuade them, and when at last the silk bag lay flat and lifeless on the ground, they tied it to a horse's tail and set him galloping through the field, with wild excitement they followed in chase, till hardly a shred of poor and Charles's carefully built balloon remained to be trodden on, when the country folk were so ignorant as this, we can hardly be surprised to read that the government soon found it advisable to make Montgolfier's discovery widely known, so as to allay the terror which it might otherwise excite among the people. John Lee, my garden concert, I hear a splendid concert in my garden every day, when the breezes find by grove and lawn some instrument to play, they shake the shiny laurel with the clatter of the bones, and from the lofty sycamore draw deeper cello tones and giving thus the signal that the concert should begin, the brook beside the pebbled path strikes up its mandolin, then all the garden wakes to sound, for not a bird is mute, the robin pipes the piccolo, the blackbird plays the flute, while high upon a cedar top a thrush with bubbling throat lifts up to this accompaniment her clear soprano note, then by and by there softly sounds, beside some flowering tree the oboe of the dancing gnat, the cornet of the bee, such tiny notes and yet with ease their cadence I can trace, while overhead some passing rook puts in his noisy bass, or from a green and shady copse, a daisied field away, I hear the jarring discords of a magpie and a jay, the wine conducts the orchestra, and as he beats the time the flood of music sinks and swells in melody sublime, till, when the darkness deepens and the sun sets in the west, they all put up their instruments and settle down to rest, and when I seek my slumber, like the daisy or the bird, my rest is all the better for the concert I have heard, the legend of Echelefianestian, a German version of an old story, in former times there ruled at Almuetz, in Moravia, a duke who allowed himself, when in anger, to do many cruel things, one day, Bruno, his falconer, came trembling before his master and announced to him that the finest of the falcons was dead, when the duke heard this, he flew into a passion, and commanded his servants to chastise the man severely. Bruno, however, succeeded in escaping the intended punishment, and hid himself in the thick forest which extends from Almuetz to the Oder Valley. There he lived by hunting, and occupied himself with charcoal burning. It happened one day that as Bruno, armed with bow and arrow and battle axe, was going through the forest, he suddenly heard the well-known hunting cry of the duke. He quickly hid himself behind an oak tree in order that his master should not discover him, and saw, to his horror, that his master was pursued by a wild bison, the duke would have lost his life, 
if Bruno, with his battle axe, had not courageously attacked the furious animal and given it a mortal wound, deeply touched, the duke thanked the deliverer of his life for his proved fidelity, and bade him ask any favor he pleased, Bruno did so, he asked to be allowed to possess as much land as he could encircle with the skin of the dead bison, smilingly, the duke promised to grant the request, the falconer began to cut the skin into small strips, and with them encircled the whole hill upon which he had saved his prince's life. The duke was highly pleased with this proof of Bruno's cleverness as well as courage, made him into a knight, and put him in a position of honor at his court. Bruno became dearer to his master every day, and rendered him many and great services. In later times he built a castle on the hill, which, in memory of the duke's deliverance, he called Helfenstein, W.Y. chased by seagulls. Seagulls are a very distinct tribe of birds, mostly lovers of the sea yet from time to time showing themselves inland, they look larger than they really are, owing to their having a quantity of down and feathers, the wings being also long and the head large, they are equipped with a strong and straight bill, by means of which they devour a great variety of food, they will occasionally go out to sea hundreds of miles from land, but they are not welcome sights to the mariner, for he usually regards them as signs that bad weather is approaching, the most familiar species is the common seal white and gray, with greenish legs, one of the peculiarities of the seagull is its habit of dashing in parties after any object that attracts its notice, this now and then furnishes amusement to men and boys who are strolling along the Thames banks or bridges, supplying themselves with bits of bread or fragments of meat, they fling these upon the river, and watch the birds eagerly pursue the food, seagulls will also give chase to birds of other species they may come across, not long ago the Cunard steamer Campania, from New York, was nearly due south of Nova Scotia, when the lookout observed a bird close at hand flying rapidly, in fact, it went faster than the ship, which was then moving 24 statute miles an hour, a great number of seals were chasing the fugitive, but could not make enough speed to catch it, at length the bird settled upon the deck, wearied, and proved to be a fine specimen of the snowy owl, the snowy owl is a species chiefly found in the Arctic Circle, especially about Greenland and Iceland. It is a hardy bird, and has its nest among the rocks. The bill is hooked like a hawk's, having round the base a few stiff feathers. Its plumage is snowy white touched with some brown. J.R.S.C. The Captain and the Invalid. A fine instance of moral courage occurred not long ago at a small seaport. The captain of a little passenger boat, a tall, sun-brown man stood on his craft superintending the laborers of his men, when the boat train came in and about twelve minutes after, a party of half a dozen gentlemen came along, and, deliberately walking up to the captain, thus addressed him, Sir, we wish to go by this boat, but our further progress today depends upon you, in the train we have just left there is a sick man, whose presence is extremely disagreeable to us, we have been chosen as a committee by the passengers, to ask that you will deny this man a passage on your boat, if he goes, we remain here, by this time others had come from the train, gentlemen, said the captain, I have heard the passengers through your committee, has the invalid any representatives here, I wish to hear both sides of the question, to this unexpected inquiry there was not a single answer, without a pause, the captain crossed to the car, and, entering, beheld a poor, emaciated, worn out creature, who was obviously very weak and ill, the man's head was bowed in his hands, and he was weeping, the captain advanced and spoke kindly to him, 
Oh, sir, said the invalid, looking up, his face lit up with hope and expectation. Are you the captain, and will you take me? The passengers shun me, and are so unkind, you see, sir, I am dying, but if I can live to see my mother, I shall die happy. She lives at the sir, and my journey is more than half performed. I am a poor printer, and the only child of her in whose arms I would wish to die. You shall go, said the captain, if I lose every passenger for the trip. By this time the whole crowd of passengers were grouped around the gangway, with their baggage piled on the pier, waiting for the decision of the captain, before engaging their passage. A moment more, and that decision was made known, for they saw him coming from the cars with the sick man cradled in his strong arms, pushing directly through the crowd with his burden. He ordered a mattress to be put in the cabin, where he laid the invalid with all the care of a parent. Then, scarcely deigning to cast a look at the astonished crowd, he called loudly to his men, let go. But a new feeling seemed to possess the passengers, that of shame and contrition at their own inhumanity. With a common impulse each seized his own baggage, and went in a shame-faced way on board the boat. In a short time a message was sent to the captain, asking his presence in the cabin. He went, and one of the passengers, speaking for the rest, with faltering voice told the rough captain that he had taught them a lesson that they felt humble before him, and they asked his forgiveness. W.Y.B.K.'s, buttercups and daisies, violets and may, pimpernels and cowslips, make a sweet bouquet. Not a rose among them, not the garden yields, yet a lot of beauty taken from the fields, gathered in the sunshine, through the happy hours what a sweet bouquet. Dears, made of simple flowers, patience and forgiveness. Kindness to the weak, willing in our labor all the happy week, no exalted actions striving after praise, yet a lot of beauty from life's lowly ways, gathered through the day, dear, by the heart that heeds what a sweet bouquet, dear, made of simple deeds, J. L. McLeod of Ciliari, founded on fact, I the moonlight lay in soft brilliance over the land of Burma, its rays pierced the small slit windows in the cell of the fanatic and we loaded and lighted up the fierce faces of the decoits and desperate men, who from time to time stealthily entered, until a close-packed band had collected. Near and far a message had reached these malcontents that an attack would be made on some of the British outposts scattered here and there over the newly conquered territory, and held by English officers and a brave force of Sikhs and Patans. We are as nothing, said in we loaded, these Ngali Englishmen have taken our country, and are now setting up their camps everywhere among us for these men to spy on us. They say the glorious King Theba is dead. Know we not well that he will come again and reign over us. I am myself possessed of magic power. I have swallowed the all-powerful mercury, which makes me proof against bullet and steel, which turn to water as they touch me. Have I not also the coins of invulnerability bound in the flesh and blood of my arm? And the fanatic stripped up the sleeve of his yellow robe and showed his bare, skinny upper arm where the edges of buried coins were visible in deep cuts. I am king as well as priest, I am the prince Setkia Mutna, who was drowned in the Irrawaddy seventy years ago. I have come to life again behold, I am he. Dusky hands were raised in salutation, and one evil-looking warrior stepped forward, I am also proof against bullets. Was I not the boss chief, goat, head warrior? I am ready to lead any expedition against these robbing English. See, we are all armed. The moonlight flashed on the murderous-looking dawn eyes raised for an instant from the folds of the garments of the assembled men. Our first attack, 
Set in we loaded. Shall be on the Sardu station. Our scout, Almet, has brought word that much of their force has been called away to quell the Waz. Our attack shall be swift and sure. And with our band here we shall outnumber them. And exterminate the whole while they are sleeping. When shall we start? No time like the present. Was the cry. And the Dawes flew out again and were uplifted. In a few minutes the cell was emptied. And the stealthy march began. By rock and jungle and secret paths. To the doomed outpost station. The hours passed. And the early morning light showed pale on the blazing huts of Sardu Fort. And on dead and dying scattered about. Where the dead were thickest lay a young English officer gasping. In his. My darling. We shall meet again soon. And our little son close at hand lay the fanatic. And we loaded. Dead, his magic coins and mercury federal body no proof against British steel. From the distant spear came the tread of a returning force too late, and in the deepest shades of the jungle a native woman, with horror-stricken face, pressed forward through tangle and thorn, with a living, wailing bundle clasped close to her breast. How many days she spent in weary wandering over well nigh a hundred miles of jungle and plain, helped by log boat up strange waters, ever heading for the homes of her people. The Karens aborn she was never to reach who can say. It was early morning. The first faint streaks of dawn were chasing the night shadows from hill and valley. Early risers in a little jungle village far distant from Fort Sardu shivered as they rose from their sleeping places, and pushing aside the curiously woven mats, hung from the eaves of the sloping roofs, descended to the waking world outside. The native dogs howled hideously as they were unceremoniously driven from the still smoldering embers of last night's fires. Mom yet, one of the first astir, twisted the folds of his waist cloth closer around him, and looked forth upon the morning. The rising sun was turning into gold and bronze the ripening paddy fields close at hand, glorifying the reed roofs of the native huts under the feathery palms, and gilding the distant belt of jungle, stretching away to the horizon. The huts of the Tonghai tribe were a raised breast high on stout posts, as protection against wild beasts and snakes. Many dark-skinned natives moving around in busy preparation showed that the laborers of the day would be beginning early. It was the time of the Burmese harvest, and the first of the ripe paddy fields would be gathered in that day. Already might be heard the hoarse voice of crows, and the screams of hundreds of bright-hued parakeets, descending for their feast on the precious grain. At the sound, Many of the village youths ran up quickly, and with cries and rude bird clappers scared the birds away, only to set to work again at some more distant spot. Many and various were the sounds echoing around Mom yet, and ever and anon he seemed to distinguish from among them a sound like a human cry. Once more it came, and Mom stood keenly listening. Yes, a cry for help, certainly, and a dog's strange, shrill bark, to end both from the far-off jungle. Mom yet trembled. Was it the cry, perchance, of some robber luring him to destruction? Or was it really a fellow creature's cry for help? The Burman, like all his race, was very superstitious, and avoided the jungle as being haunted, but his heart was kind. Arming himself with his primitive sickle, he beckoned to Lanwe, his young brother, who was squatting on the ground eating a huge mass of rice, and set off at full speed towards the spot whence the cries proceeded. Attracted onward against his will by the voice of misery, the youth followed him closely, his eyes wide open with fear, as they neared the dreaded jungle. In its dark shadows who could say what dangers lurked? They pressed on, however, through trails of prickly foliage, clinging undergrowth, and fallen timber, 
which lay like so many traps for unwary feet. The cry had sunk to a moan, but the dog's whine was shriller and more urgent as they neared the end of their quest. Both Berman were tattooed over breast and shoulders with a glorious blazonry of red a decoration performed with religious rites as a protection against evil spirits. Few Berman would face the jungle unless thus fortified. Mong felt a few qualms even in spite of his tattoo. But invoking the aim song the good spirits, he and his young companion, breathless and panting, struggled on, and came to what they sought at last. Half resting against a fallen tree trunk lay an apparently dead native woman reduced to almost a skeleton, her bare feet told of long, rough journeying, and from wrist to elbow of the left arm was a half-healed wound, such as Mong yet knew well the keen dog could leave, from her neck was slung a baby, and standing fiercely on guard, a lean, whitish dog, with the curious canine instinct, divining rightly friend or foe, the dog allowed the approach of the tuberman, Mong knelt and raised the prostrate woman, the weak head fell heavily on his shoulder, then stirred uneasily, the eyes opened, and the dying lips tried again and again to find utterance. Broken words at last whispered faintly over and over again. Bebe in golly Maklu, bacon missy bebe. Then the wasted hands tried to remove the baby. Mong understood, and signed to the youth to lift it from her neck. The movement woke the child, and it uttered a thin cry. The sound roused the flickering life of the dying woman for an instant. With the last movement she lightly touched the wee dark head, smiled faintly, and died. A shallow grave was hastily dug. A pouch in the tattered garments contained a few coins of money and a curious small gold cross. Mong yet touched his tattoo anxiously as he took the latter, it must be, he thought, some strange charm. Then he placed the coins in the mouth of the dead woman, in the belief that this provided ferry higher over the death river, and he and Lan we lifted the woman into the grave. Then. With all speed, the tubermen left the hated jungle, carrying the tiny infant, the lean dog following closely, continued on page 78, the boy tramp, continued from page 61, the cyclist was a good-looking, short, but well-built man, clad in a light, homespun suit, with knickerbockers and a Panama hat. on the frame of his bicycle was an ordinary Macintosh haversack, and, strapped behind the saddle, a paint box a folding sketching stool, and a good-sized sketching block. Fixing the pump, he knelt down to inflate the tire, but the pump was rather small. The sun was hot as I felt, having no hat, and the man seemed soon to weary of his job. He had glanced once or twice in my direction, and now he rose, blew out his cheeks, and cried, Hi, boy, do you want to earn a copper? Rather, I answered, thinking of breakfast, just pump up this tire for me. Then, he said, and, going down on my knees by the roadside, I began to pump with a will, while he took out a pipe and began to fill it. Think that's all right? He asked, as I rose to my feet. It feels pretty hard, I answered. Well, here's tuppence for you. He cried, thanks, awfully, I said, putting out my hand, holding his machine, on the point of wheeling it into the middle of the road. He paused, staring into my face. Where are you bound for? He inquired. London. I replied. Can you tell me which is the road? He stared again for what seemed a long time. And it was evident that I caused him a little perplexity. Of course. He muttered. Half to himself. It must be the holidays just now. They began last month. I answered. Yet I am sure you are running away. He cried. Somewhat alarmed. 
in consequence of my recent experiences, I thought it time to get on my way. Don't be in a hurry, he said. I think you and I ought to have a little talk. I want to get along, I retorted. Where to? To get some breakfast, I replied. Hungry, eh? He asked. A little. With that he looked at his watch, then, saying that it was nearly twelve, he took from a side pocket of his jacket a tin case, packed with tempting-looking sandwiches. Just put yourself outside those, he said, handing me the tin. But but, I suggested with an effort, won't you want them? I am all right, he said, with a laugh, you needn't bother about me. Sit down and start, needing no further persuasion. I sat down on the grass by the wayside, and steadily emptied the sandwich tin. Before this was accomplished, however, he produced a flask, pouring some of its contents into a small cup which fitted onto one end. It seemed to put fresh life into me. Feel better? He inquired, as he replaced the flask in his pocket. Ever so much, I answered. Well, then, suppose you tell me all about yourself. I would much rather not, I insisted. Why? Because you you might try to take me back. Think for a moment, and don't be stupid, he said. How can I take you back if you don't tell me where you have come from? Besides, you would be as much as I could carry with my bike, you know, so fire away, he added, and I sat on the grass and once more told my story from the beginning, except that this time I omitted to mention Mr. Turton's name or address, when you reach London, he asked after I had become silent, what are you going to do, other fellows have been able to do things, I answered, but, you know, he said, with a kind sort of smile, you have not even got a cat, I believe I shall be all right if only I get there, I persisted, if you would not mind telling me the way to the main road, well, he said, all roads lead to London, anyone will do for me, I answered, and upon that he wheeled his machine into the middle of the road, ever ridden on a step, he asked, rather, then get up behind me, only don't upset my baggage, he mounted as he spoke, and in a second I was standing on the step behind him, in spite of the circumstances, I thoroughly enjoyed that eight miles ride, and felt sincerely sorry when it ended, now we coasted down a hill, now we both dismounted to walk up one, and, after one such walk, my companion stopped, and fastened his haversack, and took out a cloth cap, think you could wear that, he asked, and, trying it on, I found it was only slightly too big, thank you most awfully, I said as we rode on again, and then we did not stop until we reached four crossroads, seeing the word Polempton on a finger post. I perceived that I had returned to the road from Castlemore to London, which I had left to cross the fields in my futile endeavor to avoid the tramp. It was true that I had made a fairly wide circuit, for my new friend told me I should still have five miles to walk to Polempton. I am immensely obliged to you for the lift and, and everything, I said, as he seemed to be on the point of starting. I felt extremely reluctant to part from him. That is all right, he answered, thrusting his hand in his knickerbocker pocket. This may help you on your way. He put something into my hand as he pressed it. Then, without another word, mounted his bicycle and rode away. Opening my hand, I found five two-shilling pieces. For the next few yards I did not see things very clearly, for I felt too thankful. After looking back once or twice until he was out of sight, I set out in a business-like manner to walk the five miles to Polempton. The events of the morning had filled me with fresh courage, 
And now that my face was once set towards London, earlier hopes began to reawaken. I should have liked to know my companion's name, to keep in my memory with that of Mr. Baker and Eliza, but I never saw or heard of him again. Still, I have not forgotten him or the good turn he did me, and I wish that this story might come into his hands to show that I am not ungrateful. Having passed through so much in a short time, I was inclined to expect every mile to bring forth its own peculiar adventure, but Polemkong came into sight without any remarkable occurrence. I scarcely enjoyed the walk, as my legs ached more than ever, and I rested many times by the roadside. Today being Friday, I determined, on the strength of my ten shillings, to look for a cheap temperance hotel, or some place of the kind, and make a bargain with the proprietor to stay over Saturday and Sunday. This would give me time to rest and make myself a little more presentable, because, in my present muddy condition, I knew that it would be impossible to obtain any kind of work for that was what I intended to do, instead of hoping to reach London in six days, as at first, I would try to earn a little money by the way, because I perceived that it would be no use entering in such a condition as I was at present, Polemkon appeared to be even a smaller place than Broughton, and by no stretch of imagination could it be described as a town, still, it felt pleasant to see a few people about, and noticing a clean-looking whitewashed cottage, with a few bottles of sweets and ginger beer in the window, I entered, sitting down on an empty box while a white-haired, round-backed old woman opened a bottle of ginger beer, and a spaniel came from a back room and began to lick my hands, having paid my penny, I sat sipping the ginger beer, when it occurred to me that it would be a capital place to lodge, if only the old woman would take me, I say, I exclaimed, do you know where I could get a lodging? She looked a little suspiciously at my muddy legs. For yourself? She inquired. Yes. How long for? Till Monday morning. I answered. You see. I want to know how much it would cost for a bed and food until then. That is three nights. She said. Thoughtfully. There is a small room I might make up a bed in on the floor. If that would suit you. And there will be a joint of pork for Sunday. Today's only Friday. I hinted. There is a bit of cheese and a bit of bacon. She explained, till Monday morning, you say, I should not think five shillings would hurt you, so I gave her five shillings, thus leaving only five and a penny in my pocket, but so sorely at that moment did I feel the need of rest that I did not hesitate. The old woman Mrs. Randalls lived alone with her old brown spaniel. There was a room behind the shop, which served the purpose of a kitchen, a sitting room, and a wash house. In one corner stood a step ladder leading to one bedroom and a kind of cupboard, without either a window or fireplace, or any furniture but one bottomless chair, this I discovered was intended for my own use, and, indeed, so long as I might lie down in it, I cared about Lee, 